There's a, seriously, there's a new thing with our new online fellowship group that is reaching all over the United States and possibly the world. Because how many of you are actually in a fellowship group here in the class? Show me your hands. So these people fellowship in small groups, and now we have an online group. There it is, of different people in different places that um, even local people like you could join up if you're unable to be in a, a physical fellowship group. You could join up in the online group. Any thoughts on that? Well, the main thing I want to say is it's so much of a thrill to find out how the effect of the ministry team, the folks from cameras to sound to upstairs to downstairs to to the pastoral staff and Brent and all, how this uh, is used around the, the world. So I found out this morning, we've got Katie listening from Seattle, Washington. We've got Rachel listening from New York City. So we're at least coast to coast, but I've also been told already that we've got people listening in England and we've got people listening in China. And so we've got people from around the globe that are plugged in and Tom Cushing from North Dakota or South Dakota or one of the Dakotas, Dakota Tom is one of our fervent class members via the internet. And he has started this uh, internet ministry of sorts, a, a, a fellowship group based upon the internet viewers. So that's kind of cool. Amen. Well, it's such a joy to get to be here this morning. We're continuing through vignettes in the life of Jesus and how they teach us uh, and, and instruct us today. In the process of that, I've been clumping those of late around different subject areas. Last week, I clumped it around the area of Jesus teaching us about worship this week, I knew that I would have in town some pretty important folks in my in Becky's life. And so I decided I would teach on Jesus and his interactions with women. Now, I've got a wife. My mom is, uh, is uh, still alive. My father passed away about 15 years ago. But I've all got four daughters and a daughter-in-law and a granddaughter. So I've got enough women to like, I've got enough women to make this a joyful life. And to top it all off, I've got two young ladies in this class who always come up and give me a little card that they've made or something like that. And I've, I've, I keep them on my desk. Rebecca and Rachel Delgado is who they are. And this year they gave me, if we can go to the Elmo, a Thanksgiving card last week. Where they drew a picture of me. (laughs) Mr. Lanier. Dale, I think that's a pajama shirt, as you call it. One of my shirts. But look at that, with my glasses, and I'm holding the Bible. And they wrote, we hope you have a wonderful Thanksgiving. Psalm 68, 4, sing to God, to the Lord, sing praises to his name, lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Um, Exalt before him. This week he rode through the deserts, but that would have an extra S. (laughs) Drew a turkey and then drew pictures of Rebecca and Rachel. And there are, if I recall correctly, six and four or seven and four. But we've got just some marvelous, marvelous women in our lives of all ages. And I'm really excited to talk this morning about Jesus's interactions with women. And so in the process of this, what I'd like to do is, is warn you that last week when I did worship... I left out my favorite passage of Jesus in worship. I I just totally forgot to put it in there. So I'm going to stick that into the middle of today's class. It's kind of like a commercial break. Okay? So here we go. Um, One of the problems scholars have when they translate the Bible is an easy problem in a sense. At least it's one that, that is the conquerable problem of translations, and that is the language barrier. How do you take what is, in the Old Testament, Hebrew, mostly, some Aramaic, and turn it into something that English speakers, if you're translating into English, 
English speakers will understand. The New Testament, it's how do you take Greek and turn it into something that English readers and speakers will understand. But the New Testament Gospels have a particular double problem. Because the, the, the Gospels took place, those stories took place, some of them in Greek, but most of them in Hebrew and Aramaic, two different languages. So now you've got Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic, and you've got to take all of that and turn it into Greek, which is what the writers did of the New Testament, of the Gospels. And then today we turn it into our English or whichever language we're translating into. So those language barriers can be an issue. But beyond the language barriers, there's a whole nother layer of translation issues that become very important, bless you, today. And that's the cultural translation. Because the culture in that day and age is very different than the culture today. Now there are some people in here, I was born 1960. I'm a child of the 60s, just barely. But some of you were born much later. Some of you were born earlier. And, see, I did not say much earlier. (laughs) Politically correct. (laughs) Trying to be, anyway. So, some of you are very ancient. Wait. (laughs) And I mean that in the most complimentary fashion. And, and, And some of you are like... Rachel and and Rebecca Delgado. So we've got this spectrum of folks. And it becomes very important when we look at these passages of Jesus and women. Because the temptation and the urge is to read it through the glasses of today. Without making the cultural translation. The cultural shift. And so you have a lot of people who were fairly outspoken about how Jesus was, you know, a chauvinist, or Paul was was a chauvinist, or and I and 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 I cringe when people make those assumptions because they're reading through the glasses of today. They're not reading with a cultural translation. So I want us to put this into a little bit of perspective. So I want to talk about some major shifts that have happened in culture regarding women in society. So I threw up a timeline here from the ministry of Jesus, 30 to 33 AD, which is the time period we'll be reading about, going up through today. I tried to make the timeline fairly reflective because I wanted you to understand that From the time of Jesus' ministry, the real issues of cultural change for many women that we experience were issues that happened in that little bitty red spot at the end of my timeline. It was not until 1920 that women got the right to vote. That's less than a hundred years ago. It was not until 1954 that women got to serve on a jury in Texas. It is not until 1964 that the federal laws were passed to stop discriminating based upon gender. You'd be a woman in 1964... And you try to get a credit card in your name, you're going to have trouble. It wasn't until 1965, Griswold versus Connecticut, that the Supreme Court said women can choose to take birth control or not. The government can't make that choice for them. So you get my daughters, for example. My daughters did not grow up with any of those concerns. Right to vote. Sarah, our 
19-year-old daughter, Sarah, where are you? Right there, stand up. Sophomore at Baylor. Stand up. No, you have to stand up. I said stand up. There you go. Yeah, the one with her head down. That's her. Sophomore at Baylor. Votes by mail to make sure she can vote locally in our election this fall. Wouldn't have had... Yeah, I'm very proud of you. That's because of the influence of her oldest sister, Gracie. Gracie, stand up. Who's 30. Go ahead, Gracie. You have to... That's Gracie, 30, who taught Sarah the importance of voting. But Gracie, who's here with JT... JT, stand up. JT is Gracie's husband. JT's had the right to vote for eons. And then my wife, Becky. And then behind my wife, Becky, my mom. My sister, Catherine, is she in here today? There she is back there. My sister, Holly, may have headed back to San Antonio today. But... but. This is foreign to, maybe not to mom, not that she is ancient, mom is 35, but this, this is foreign to many women that are alive today. Culturally, things have changed significantly in just the last 100 years in America. Last year, things changed significantly, wasn't it last year or was it this year? Women in Saudi Arabia have been given the right to drive. So we've got to understand some of this as we look at these passages, especially this first passage. Because I'm convinced we've missed some of the most important part of this passage because we haven't read it culturally properly. You ready? Here it is. Luke 10, 38 through 42. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And Martha went up to Jesus and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha. You are anxious and troubled about many things, but only one thing is necessary. Mary's chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Now, this is one where we've got the language pretty good, but where we're missing an emphasis on the culture. We need to understand and remember that at the time of Jesus... The rabbis had been very um, strident, very harsh, can I say? Very narrow, very restrictive in the teaching of what women can and cannot do. They'd forgotten the Old Testament where Jesus, God had been, you know, he, she made Eve out of Adam's side. Not his head, not his feet, out of his side. Made him to be a helper, a co-mate. They forgot, maybe, or they explained away, actually. Deborah as a judge over Israel. The, The way that Rahab had rescued the spies that had gone through the land. The importance of Ruth. These important women in in the passages where God compares himself to a, a nursing mother. Says, could I ever forget Israel? I could no more forget Israel than a, a mother could forget nursing her child. Because that's what I've done for Israel. They had put all of those aside and by the time of Jesus, the rabbinical writings of the first two centuries that are in the Mishnah read in passages like this from Sota. May the words of the Torah be burned before they get handed over to women. It's better to burn the Bible than to put it in the hands of a woman. How about this one? The man who teaches his daughter the Bible 
teaches her extravagance. That's a bad thing. Men weren't even supposed to be talking to women according to many of these rabbis unless they were related to them. But the idea of teaching them the Torah? No, women don't learn scripture. That's not their place. In the synagogue worships, services, in the synagogues, the women were kept totally isolated from everyone else. If you want to know how many people it takes, how many Jews does it take to have enough for a synagogue? Ten men. Because women weren't supposed to say all of the prayers. So you've got to have ten men to say all the prayers. Doesn't matter how many women you've got. Can't have a synagogue without ten men to say all the prayers. And so into this world, I read an interesting article on this by Rabbi Michael Val, who's taught this class before, a Messianic rabbi here in Houston, friend of Tim's and, and Rick's and, and some of ours. And he said, you know, if you read it in cultural context, Mary in that story is like Rosa Parks. Mary is like Betty Williams. Rosa Parks, maybe we know better than Betty Williams. Rosa Parks, 1955, Montgomery, Alabama. Segregation at its height. There's a section of the bus at the back of the bus where the African Americans were expected to sit and a section at the front of the bus where the Euro-Americans were expected to sit. And it wasn't just inspected, it was the law. And Rosa Parks chose to sit in a seat that was not in her section that was based on the color of her skin. And the bus driver had her arrested. And it launched the bus boycott. And it was a, 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 a monumental moment in the civil rights movement in America. That's a picture of her in 1955 that I've got up there. The year she did it. That's Martin Luther King over her right shoulder. Betty Williams, maybe you don't know as readily. Betty Williams in 1976 won the Nobel Peace Prize. She was just a receptionist driving down the road in Northern Ireland when a terrorist, an IRA terrorist, got into a shootout and as a result crashed a car killing three innocent children. And Betty Williams said, enough of this. Fighting supposedly over religion. They should have heard Pastor David's sermon this morning. And yet, in 19... I'm 16 years old when this happens. And so as a result, Betty Williams organizes 10,000 women, Catholic and Protestant, to march for peace. And they're marching to the graves of these three children. The IRA sets upon them and through violence disrupts the march, the peaceful march. Not to be deterred, she announced it was coming again and they would do it again. And this time 35,000 people joined her for that march. Yeah. And, 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 and it, was, it was not what a receptionist was expected to be doing. By the way, she wound up moving to Texas. <laughs> teaching at Sam Houston State University. And only recently moved back to Ireland. 
But you look at these women and these women were not happy with the status quo and they weren't accepting of the, the, the bigotry or the, the, the hatred and the animosity and the divisiveness and they said, we're going to do something about it. They changed their seats from what society expected of them and they changed the world. Jesus gave women a seat in the classroom. Mary was not expected to be sitting at the feet of Jesus while he's teaching. That's what men were supposed to be doing. Mary was supposed to be in the kitchen helping Martha. Women weren't entitled to that. You know when Martha came in and said, uh, Jesus, uh, you know, she, she needs to be helping me. Uh, you know that the men who were at the feet of Jesus, who were so uncomfortable that she was there. Because women were not allowed even in the synagogue to sit in the group of men to study. Those, those men were like, yeah, thank you, Martha. We got to get her out of here. You know, we got to get back to the men's business, learning at the feet of the master rabbi. <laughs> and Jesus is just like, Martha, 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 you're fretting over a whole bunch of stuff. She's doing the right thing. See, Jesus, Jesus started what, what I say started. It, it was in the Old Testament. Jesus renewed God's instruction. That Paul put into really easy to understand explanations when he wrote the letter to the Galatians. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female in Christ Jesus. You're all one in Christ. That was a renegade idea in their day. And we're missing this story if we don't see that. As they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. A woman named Martha welcomed him. Jesus knew who Martha was. Martha knew who Jesus was. John eleven twenty seven. 27. We, we always talk about Peter's proclamation of who Jesus is. Look at John 11. Martha had a, Mary and Martha had a brother. His name was Lazarus. And uh, Lazarus was sick. Martha heard Jesus was coming. She went and met him. Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus didn't get there on time. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to Jesus, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I'm the resurrection. I'm the life. And whoever believes in me, though he dies, will yet live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. Look at this. I believe you are the Messiah, Ben Elohim, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. I mean, Peter saw it. Martha saw it. She understood it's not that she was just some bimbo. She had faith, she had knowledge, but she also felt like she was supposed to be serving. Martha welcomes her into the house. She has a sister, Mary. Mary sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Luke does not say uh, Mary just stood by idly. Or Mary wasn't helping Martha. Or Mary wasn't doing her bit. L Luke wants you to know what was going on. 
And everyone who was reading this with the culture of the day it was written knew exactly what this meant. She was in the wrong seat on the bus. Mary is not where she belongs. Martha's distracted. The Greek word for distracted means she's, she's, she's a multi-mind. She, re, she knows what Mary's doing. But Martha's busying herself trying to do her work, what she thinks needs to be done to take care of the people in her home. Hospitality is a good thing. This passage is not trashing hospitality. Jesus is not trashing hospitality and taking care of things and acts of service. Jesus was all about service. But while she's distracted doing serving, which is a good thing, she's distracted because of what her sister's doing. And so she goes to Jesus. Martha goes to Jesus. Says, don't you care that Mary's in there? Leaving me to do the serving? The the importance of this is not simply Martha's worried that she has to carry out all of the tea. But it's that Mary's in there. When she ought to be doing what I'm doing. She doesn't belong in there. That's the wrong seat on the bus. Don't you care? Tell her to get herself out of that group and in here to help me. And Jesus' answer was, Martha, Martha, which is endearing in itself. Jesus, God, uses the same name twice as an endearment. Abraham, Abraham, Martha, Martha, Moses, Moses. I mean, that's, that's, that's an endearing thing. Becky, Becky. <laughs> You're anxious and troubled about many things. Only one thing is necessary. What is that one thing, Jesus? Luke, why didn't you tell us? What is the one thing that's necessary? What is that one thing that's necessary? Mary's chosen the good portion. She's doing something good. It's not going to be taken from her. This is not, I'm going to take from her her chance to sit and learn at the feet of the Messiah. Rabbi Jesus. I'm not going to do what the other rabbis say. Burn the Torah before you give it to a woman. So I read this and I say, what are my lessons? What, what, what do I take home from this? Well, first of all, I take home, I'm going to follow Jesus. Because that's what was important. Luke doesn't spell it out, but it's very clear from reading the story. What's important is to follow Jesus. Maybe that's serving your guests. But maybe it's sitting at his feet listening to him teach the Torah or the prophets. Second lesson to go for me on this. God wants you and God wants me regardless of what society thinks. Pastor David's challenge to us this morning fits so well with this lesson. I emailed him this morning at like four something in the morning. I was putting this PowerPoint together. I said, Pastor David, if you get complaints about me today, I'm speaking about this stuff. He's, and he emailed me back. He said, hey, our people love the word of God. You speak the word of God and don't worry about upsetting anybody. Our people can handle it. <laughs> Because I want to tell you, society's not always that way. Society has a tendency to, to bring us to a point where we want to draw those circles around and make our group the group. And you don't come into our group unless you vote the right way and support the right politicians or party. And you don't come into our group unless your skin is a certain color. I have a friend who is a wonderful brother in the Lord, happens to be a lawyer. There are like multiple lawyers 
I always thought it was just Mike Moriarty. Uh, kids, no, I'm joking. But he is a brother in the Lord who grew up in Alabama, Montgomery, Alabama. And he can remember during the civil rights movement, African Americans, a, a, a family trying to come to church, and the deacons in the front of the church stood arms linked so that they couldn't get in the door. He's my age, he remembers that. And if I'll understand that God wants you and God wants me regardless of what society thinks, then it's like Pastor David said, I want to be on the side of God. I want you regardless of what society thinks. That is a tough, tough pill for some people to handle because we've got this deep ingrainment in us from history and life. And that works probably both ways. There's probably, for some, a distrust of us white men who have held gender over them or who have held race over them or us college-educated professionals who have held that over people and the lesson to this story is no everyone belongs at the feet of Jesus everyone and so I'm going to show people the respect that Jesus showed I love that passage okay time out we got to fit in the worship one that I didn't get to I'll do it briefly. Think of this as a commercial, and then we'll get back to the teachings on women. Okay. Square peg, round hole. Everybody knows that analogy? You, you, roles and responsibilities are important. You want the right person in the right job? We've got, I don't know, 140, 150 people at the law firm. If you combine all the offices together, and, and Kevin... Uh, Roberts, who runs all of that, is always telling me, you know, the goal is to make sure people find their right place. If some people are, are gifted at writing, they need to be writing. Some people are gifted at speaking, they need to be speaking. Some people are gifted at relating to others, they need to be the people relating to others. Some people are gifted at, at cleaning, they need to be cleaning. Some people are gifted. There are different roles for different people, right? You got the concept. Now, here's the worship passage. Matthew 21, 14 through 16. And the blind and the lame came to Jesus in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and they saw the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant. And they said to Jesus, do you hear what these kids are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read? And he quotes the psalm. Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. Praise. Hosanna to the son of David is praise. Okay, we got to do that translation thing. So here it is. You ready? Hosanna... Spelled in Greek with the, that W-looking letter that looks like it's got a comma on top. The comma on top means go, ha, ah, when you say it. Because they didn't have an H. Ha, ah, okay? And then that W-looking letter is just the long O. It's the omega. So that's Hosanna. That's the Greek word. Do you know the Greek word for Hosanna? Hosanna. Hosanna is just the Greek spelling, though, of an Aramaic phrase. Hosha na. Aramaic, um, Arabic, uh, Hebrew, all the Semitic languages have a sh sound. Greek doesn't have a sh sound. They couldn't do the sh sound. That's why Saul's name in Hebrew was Shaul. But when he goes out into the Greek world, they can't say Shaul. They don't have a sha sound. So they write it in the Bible as Saul instead of Shaul. 
but when he's out in the Greek world, he goes by his Roman name, Paul. Okay? But, Sha, Hosha, Na. Now that was a shout of praise, but what it means is, Hosha, save. Na, I pray to you. I'm begging you to save me. I'm, 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 I'm asking you, please save me. Jesus is in the temple and these little children are seeing, saying to Jesus in the temple, which is the place where God saves people, they're saying to Jesus, you save me. Please, I'm begging you, save me. And that's what got the priest so upset. I mean, bad enough it's being said to Jesus at all. But in the temple, have some reverence to God as Savior. And Jesus' reply is, hey, that's perfect praise. That's dead on praise. Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies and children, God has ordained perfect praise. God has called out praise. Why is that praise? Do you remember what we said last week on the Elmo? I've got the note from last week. Worship. Let's see if I can find it. Ah, There we go. Worship means to ascribe worth. To call on Jesus to be a savior is perfect worship. It's ascribing worth to Jesus. Go back to the PowerPoint, please. You see, calling on Jesus to save us is perfect praise because it's ascribing to Jesus the role that only Jesus can do. Jesus is the Savior of the world. So to call on Jesus to say, save me, is to worship the Lord. Not a, don't just think, oh, save me from my soul, or my life, my body. It's not just eternal salvation, but save me from despair. Save me from, from financial ruin. Save me from bad health. Save me to call on God to be your Savior is to worship Him. Divinely, because it's ascribing to him that role. Don't worship your money and think your money's going to save you. Don't worship your family and think your family's going to save you. God may use money to save you. He may use your family to save you. But don't ever trust in horses and chariots. We trust in the name of the Lord our God, the psalmist says. That's worship. So we'll have some lesson to go on that. I'm going to let God be God. And I'm going to give the glory and honor to God as God. And I'm going to proclaim my Savior to the world. The commercial is over. Let's get back to the women. Next passage. John 19, 25 through 27. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, comma, Mary, the wife of Clopas, comma, and Mary, Magdalene, period. Now, his mother's name was Mary. So, some people, the way the Greek's written, you could read this as if there are three women there. But I think the English Standard Version properly translates it as four women, because you can read it either way in the Greek. See, you've got Mary, his mother, and you've got his mother's sister, not named, just like the mother wasn't named. Then you've got Mary, the wife of Clopas. If you want to read this as three women instead of four, then it would be his mother and then his mother's sister, whose name was Mary. Well, that would be a bit odd. Unless you're George Foreman, you don't name multiple children the same thing. <laughs> this is my daughter Mary and this is my other daughter Mary. <laughs> Although... We know archaeologically Mary was the most common woman's name at the time of Jesus. 
We've got it. Uh, they've, they've done computer program runouts of this. Fascinating. But that's why they add Mary, the wife of Clopas, so that you knew which one it was. Mary Magdalene, so that you'd know which Mary it was. If her name had been Henrietta Snodgrass, you would not have had to add any more information to let you know which one, because there weren't a lot of those around. Mary, Mary, and Jesus sees his mother, and Jesus sees the disciple whom he loved, and this would have been John, standing nearby. And Jesus said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Now that could be Jesus on the cross, the son, but in likelihood with a nod it was also behold John who will be your new son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. Now Jesus had brothers. James was one of his brothers. But his brothers did not believe in him at the time of his crucifixion. They did at the time of his resurrection. I mean, he was dead and buried and rose again physically with the holes in his hands and the hole where the spear hit his side. You can bet his brothers believed. And the Bible makes it clear they believed. But at the time of his crucifixion, they did not. And so Jesus entrusted his mother. Um, to his disciple John. I love this story. This story touches me on multiple levels. There is a responsibility that we have. I'm up here teaching on women, but I'm going to go all gender on you for a moment. I'm going to tell you particularly, husbands and men have a particular responsibility to take care of those within their households. Now, women do as well. Don't get me wrong. But I don't feel good telling women what they ought to do. I feel fine telling men what they ought to do. Right, Max? Coach said right. So I'm a speak to the men here and I'll let the women be spoken to by someone who's got the right to speak to them. Men, we have a responsibility here. Tim, you understand this. You've got a daughter. You've got, and, and, and he has fought for his daughter. And that's the right thing to do. The fifth commandment says to honor your father and your mother. Paul said, honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. Because the other commandments didn't have the promises. This is the commandment that ends with that it may go well with you and you may live long in the land. To honor your parents doesn't mean simply to speak nicely to them. To honor your parents means to provide for them. It means to take care of them as well as to show them respect. I've got some very dear friends for whom this is particularly troublesome. For me, piece of cake. I had the best mom and dad in the world. Easy to honor them. But for those who have mothers and fathers who've been abusive who have not been worthy of honor and respect, it's a lot more challenging to figure out what this means. It does not mean to endorse an abusive parent. It doesn't mean to pretend abuse did not happen. It doesn't mean to become the doormat that an abusive parent walks on even today. Somewhere there's a fine line of navigating those issues. And if I don't say that, then I've just Pollyannaed this unfairly. Because the rich complexity of God's word undergirds that principle. But within the framework of that, 
we are still called upon to honor and to respect and to provide for. Recognizing that there will be times of, of exceptions. But here's my points, lessons to go. Number one, I'm going to honor my parents. Number two, I'm going to show love to those in my care. Jesus, do we understand what he was going through? He's exhausted. He hasn't slept. He's been betrayed. He's been all night up. He's been called in front of Pontius Pilate, a foreigner who's going to match wits with him. Yes, he's Savior of the world. Yes, he's the Son of God. He's also a 33-year-old carpenter from the hills of Galilee. And he's parsing what is truth with Pontius Pilate, the Roman Empire's strong arm. Then he's being carted off to the chief priests. And he's been spit upon. He's been mocked. He's been beaten. He's physically exhausted. He can't even carry his wooden cross all the way, but he tries to. He's got nails that have been stuck in his hands and in his feet. And they're holding his weight up. Grinding in those wounds. And these aren't little finishing nails. These are massive spikes. And he's thirsty. And he's had someone throw a spear in his side. Not to mention the fact he's carrying the sins of the world. And in the few moments of an ability to speak, which itself is hard to do because you have to use your diaphragm and you have to use your breath, which means you've got to lift yourself up from this position where that's one of the first things that goes is the crippling. So it takes extra pain to do it. He uses those final moments to make sure that his mother's taken care of. Mom, I've not always been a good son. I apologize. I love you. We need, yeah, look, some of you need to go. You just turned 17. Your parents got you a car. You better be loving on them like nobody's business, Brittany. You just got a RAV4. You better be loving on your parents like nobody's business. You, you too. One day they may give you something. I'm just telling you, come on now, let's do this right. Oh, we got to do this one real fast. We've only got two minutes, and then I can't talk to people afterwards. i got to get them to the airport. Okay, but this is too good not to go at. Jesus looked up. He saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. He saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. He said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow's put in more than all of them. They all contributed out of their abundance. She, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Luke 21, 1 through 4. That's real good. But you know what we need to do? You got to back up. Because Luke didn't put chapter numbers on his book. That wasn't done for a long time. So Luke's just writing flow. And we lose track that this is in contrast to what he's just written. So here it is, Luke 21, the widow's offering. But we got to catch what's right before it. Jesus said, beware of the scribes. In the hearing of all the people, he said, beware of the scribes. They like to walk around in long robes. Fancy clothes. They love greetings in the marketplace. Hello. Hello. They're famous. People know them when they walk in the marketplace. They got the best seats in the synagogues. Row one, dead center. Places of honor at the feast. Oh, come, you sit right here. They devour widows' houses. And for a pretense, they make long prayers. Yes, I'm not going to give you justice. Yes, I'm not going to help you. Yes, I'm going to take your house from you. But let me pray for you. Oh, Lord, bless this widow. 
they'll receive the greater condemnation. And then Jesus looks up and he sees the rich people putting their gifts into the offering box and a poor widow puts in two small copper coins. And Jesus says, she's given more than all of them. She gave everything she had. See that contrast there? That contrast there is important for us to see. The interpreters of God's laws, the scribes, the people who are responsible for teaching and interpreting, set themselves against the needy people that God actually has concern for. The people in charge of teaching are more concerned about how they look and how they're received in the public and, and, and how they get the fancy treatment and all the rest because they're so important teachers. And they're taking advantage of the ones that God actually cares about. They're supposed to be teaching about this God? It's the difference between show and substance. They were all hat and no cattle. Texas expression for those of you watching from Seattle. They were show. Law school, form over substance. So here's our last take home. Lesson to go. I want my life to be substance over form. I want God to... to, to I, 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 I want to do, not say. I'm also grabbing this for the importance of tending to the weak. And not taking advantage of them. The third thing. The importance of generosity. Should not be overlooked. I want to pray over you. But before I do. Let me tell you. Next week. Starts the first Sunday of Advent. So we'll be looking at Advent. Devotionals from the life of Jesus. um, Which means. Christmas is around the corner. The church calendar. So let me pray over you. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your, the, the teachings in the life of Jesus. Thank you for an opportunity to grow. Grow past what we've understood before. Grow past our prejudices. Grow past our, our um, views, Father, that are not in sync with yours. We want to be mirrors that reflect you, your concern for the poor, your concern for the least of these, your concern for everybody regardless of gender, race, socioeconomics, geography. We want to reflect the love of Jesus. We want to reflect the call of Jesus. We want to seek and save those who are lost through your spirit working in us. Regardless of where they are and what they are. Make that our heart, Father. And make that our life. Through Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.